Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories. Dear Younger Emily, I just want to remind you to love the small and the simple. A moment doesn't have to be big or grand or perfect to savor or treasure it because it's probably the ordinary things that you're going to miss the most. Treasure the fact that your child can walk and that they can run and play and laugh and that they have an immune system and that a cold is just a cold, that they can like eat and enjoy food and that it tastes good. The fact that you have crumbs to wipe out of a high chair at the end of the day means that your child is home and is well enough to eat. So savor those moments, savor those perfect moments and let it be enough and realize what is big in life and what is small and let the small stuff be small. So live in the moment and squeeze the good out of every moment that you can find. Let the past go, but don't dwell on the future. Stay here and now and find the good and never, ever, ever miss an opportunity to show someone that you care, even if you don't know them very well. And never doubt that God is with you, even through your darkest nights. Love, Emily. Well, thanks so much for being on my podcast. I have taken a long break and I'm glad that we get to break the silence with you because you're so awesome. Oh, you're so kind. Well, I hope this, I hope it lives up to your expectations. No, it'll be great. I'm excited. I'm so excited to introduce our guest on the podcast today, Emily Peterson. She is an amazing person. We went to high school together and we also overlapped when we lived in Chicago. And when her little girl was a little over one, she was diagnosed with leukemia. So today she's going to share with us all about her experience being the mom of a child with leukemia and She's just inspiring and amazing, and honestly, one of my biggest takeaways was that, you know, everyone goes through hard things, and if you don't know what to do, that's okay. All we have to do is just show up, and don't worry about doing the wrong thing. We just have to show up and show people that we care about them, and, you know, we're not meant to go through hardships alone. We're meant to help each other, and she has such inspiring stories about people helping them and their time of need. And I'm just grateful for her and her experience and being able to share what that was like for them. Well, Emily, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up. I grew up in, for the most part, Fruit Heights, Utah, um, which is basically an extension of Kaysville, Utah. So that's actually how I know Liz. Liz and I went to high school together. Go darts. Um, I'm the oldest of six kids. Growing up, I loved music and dancing and the outdoors. I played a little tennis. I just 
loved people. I feel like I was a pretty just ordinary, run of the mill, not stand out, not true person. at all person. Oh no, totally like not like the nicest person ever. And everybody wanted to be just like you. And every mother and father would dream to have a daughter like you. (laughs) No, I just kind of, yeah, it was just kind of a normal, a normal, very wonderful childhood in the, the foothills of the mountains. And I just absolutely loved it. So, so tell us a little bit about your husband, Josh, how did you guys meet? And tell us a little bit about his medical school and all that. I was 27 when Josh and I met. I was living in Provo, Utah. I think we met in like August and he asked me out on our first date in March, I think. So it was like quite a while that we were just like friends and hardly even knew each other. And then he asked me out and it took me a little bit longer, but he Never went on another date again. We dated for a year and then got married the next May, and it was wonderful. So we got married, and Josh was had turned in his medical school applications like the night before we got married. So that was really crazy. He didn't help plan the wedding like at all. He was just super busy taking the MCAT and stuff, which was cool because he's like free reigns whatever you want to do goes for me so bad because I asked Nate when we were planning I kept asking him questions and he was like I don't know I was <laughs> like, what color should we have and he's like I'm colorblind <laughs> and then finally I said what would you like to be involved in he's like maybe the cake flavor so Nate picked the cake flavor and that's about it so so what was the cake flavor pumpkin Ooh, chocolate chip cake. <laughs> uh, okay, that's unique, and I love that. We it had good. Yeah, you know, we had carrot cake. It was so great. So <laughs> that was a big thing for us too. It was like we we might as well enjoy this cake if we're gonna eat it. So that's fun. Um. Anyway, so we had another year in Provo, and um, then he graduated, and then we left for med school the next summer. So Josh is currently currently he's a third year medical student at Northwestern. Um, in Chicago. So we moved out to Chicago, which was so fun because Josh actually lived here when he was a little boy because his dad was attending medical school here. And his grandparents actually had lived here at one point and his great grandpa and uh, my grandparents, my grandparents also lived here uh, as my grandpa was going to school here too. And my mom was born here. So there was a lot of family connections. So it was kind of fun to actually come back to this area. That's so awesome. And we got to overlap when we were in business school. Every time we went to the the zoo, we always got to see you since you <laughs> lived right by the zoo. It was it was awesome to have you there. Such a small world. Okay, so you you and Josh met, you got married, you moved to Chicago, and then you had your first baby, Grace. Tell us a little bit about her. It was like heaven on earth it was just so fun we just absolutely adored this little girl and um (laughs) even though grace grace was colicky so the first six months of her life she screamed bloody murder from like sun up to sundown so it was it was not an easy easy start but looking back on it we're actually really (laughs) grateful because that girl's always had a lot of grit and she needed it later on so we were we were glad that she had that so it was a little rough start but we absolutely loved her and at the time she was the only grandchild on both sides so she got a lot a lot of love 
Yeah, Hayden was the first grandchild on Nate's side, and I feel like they definitely do get a lot more attention. What were some signs that you, when you first noticed that Grace was sick, and how did you decide that you wanted her to get looked at? Let me just give you a little a little backstory. So we were here in Chicago, and Josh was just finishing his second year of school, and there's um, they take their big step one test, which is like their first kind of big boards exam um, after year two. And so Josh had uh, pretty much finished his classes, and they were just going to go into their like intensive study time for the exam. And COVID hit, and everything shut down. We know we at least have a month off. Like, what are we doing here? Let's let's go home. So we jumped on a plane and packed our bags, and we went to Utah. And all of my siblings were there. So there were six kids with all of their spouses and my parents, like quarantined wow. in this house together. And I don't know. We were there maybe two months. Yeah, just a little bit under two months. And we just had a blast. So we got there just in time, like the day before Grace turned one year. We had this birthday party and everyone was just all together. And it was just so much fun. We'd been there about a month or so. And Grace got a fever, just like a normal, you know, fever. Didn't think anything of it. Afterwards, we kind of started noticing that she had some like red little like bumps kind of like all over her body. Both Josh and I come from medical families. Both of our dads are doctors. So I, I kind of asked my dad, hey, like, can you look at these red dots? I don't know what they are. And he's like, well, sometimes kids after they have a, you know, can get a high fever, sometimes they'll kind of have like a little rash or something. And so we kind of saw it and we're watching it, but didn't really think anything of it. She was just kind of learning to walk. She was crawling all over. She was bumping into things. And I kind of started noticing, like, a few little bruises. But I just thought, like, hey, you know, she's learning to walk. She falls down. You know, it's what happens, right? We ended up going to Arizona kind of unexpectedly. Josh had signed up for his test in Utah. And, like, the day before, they canceled it. So he needed to take this test. And a spot opened up in Arizona. And so within, like, five hours, we packed our bags and jumped on the plane and we were headed to Arizona. So it was, it was insane. <laughs> so Josh went to take the test like the next day and the testing center, like can't, they pulled the test. And so oh, no. anyway, yeah, it was one of those things you're just like, are we ever going to get this test done? So anyways, he found a spot like the next week he was able to get in and take his test. And it was actually a huge tender mercy because there were a lot of other people who had problems with the test. We were with Josh's family now, which was so fun. And I was still just noticing that Grace was kind of just getting more and more bruises. And so I was kind of watching it. And then the red bumps kind of still kept appearing. But it seemed really benign. Like, there were no huge, like, warning signs or anything like that. But I started noticing that some of the bruises were, like, kind of in funny spots. Like, there was a bruise right in the middle of her forehead. Um, and it was, like, pretty strong, bright gray. And then I noticed there was, like, one, like, in the middle of her tummy, you know. So it wasn't just, like, arms and legs and stuff. And then she kind of started getting bigger ones on her arms and her legs. And so it's so hard because that kind of stuff, like, you're, you, you don't want to overreact, you know. But you just don't know what to do. And so it, it honestly just came down to one night where I finally just had this just feeling wash over me, like, something is not right. 
And so I went and talked to my father-in-law, Chuck, and I said, you know what, I, I really just think that we need to, like, do something about this. And he's like, well, let's get her in for, for a blood test. And so um, the next morning, we got her in for a blood draw. I remember just being so nervous because at this point, I just knew in my heart that something was wrong. At that point, my father-in-law, I kind of sat down with him and kind of asked him, like, you know, let's lay out the cards here, you know. And um, so that was the first time that someone had really thrown out, like, leukemia as, as being an option. But, um, you know, he just, he laid it all out. If You know, like, if we got 100 marbles in a bag, you know, it's probably, like, 70% of those marbles are just fine. It's nothing, you know. And then maybe 30, you know, or 40% is, like, uh, it's something but not a big deal. And then we've got, like, you know, maybe one red marble that the, the chances of it being something big like leukemia, you know, are are not that big. And he told me later he was kind of <laughs> being generous and downplaying a little bit. But the next morning, the results were actually just sent to my father-in-law, and he was at home. So it's not usually the normal way <laughs> to, to, to get news, but I was glad that it came this way. And so he immediately came and got me and said, we, we need to go talk to Josh. And I said, well, you know, he's, he's downstairs, he's on his computer, and he's so he was actually in class. Chuck said, "It does. We just you need to come." And that's when I knew it was something bad. Chuck just sat us down in the other room, and he all he said was, "We got the we got the red marble." In my mind, I I still didn't realize that it was leukemia. I knew that it was something. I knew it was bad, and I knew it was serious. But I. And still in my mind, I had not put those together. Josh knew his dad had the report and he pulled up the blood count and showed Josh. Josh immediately knew. And so he, they said, you know, we're, we're going to the, the emergency room. And so Grace was asleep upstairs. So I went up and I, I woke her up and I got her dressed and I grabbed a bag. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't think. I didn't know what I needed or, you know, I'd never even been to an emergency room before. This was my first time ever staying in a hospital. Just jumped in the car, and uh, Chuck just drove us as fast as he could to Phoenix Children's Hospital. It was like a 20, 25-minute drive, and it was the longest drive of my life, and there was nothing really to be, to be said. So I just held grace and prayed. <laughs> and prayed and cried as we, as we drove. That was kind of all it was. It was just this particular and the bruising and just a feeling that something wasn't right. Your father-in-law kind of said, we got the red marble. When was it that you learned it was actually leukemia? Did they talk about it in the car ride? No, we didn't talk about anything in the car ride. We, we got to the hospital and jumped out and because of COVID, they actually were only allowing one parent in with the child at a time. And, and my father-in-law was there, and I don't know what he said, but he got both of us in. And I'm so grateful because I, I needed Josh with me at that point. And so... Um, well, I can't imagine doing something like that by yourself. Yeah. And later on, it was. Most of our experience in the hospital was only one parent. And that was, you know, we, we can talk about that, but that was uh, something in and of itself. But so, yeah, so we walk in and we're sitting in the emergency room. They put us in a little room and they came right in and got an IV and got a blood draw going. And, you know, things were, were moving fairly quickly. They, the team immediately came in and said, like, 
you know, we're going to do this blood, blood test and we're going to check and see and we're going to see if it's really like what we think it is. And that's when I was like, well, what do we think it is? <laughs> you know, like someone say it. And that's when they said, you know, we, we, it's leukemia, which was like an abstract word to me. You know, I, I had never really known anyone very close to me, especially a child that had had cancer. And so like all of a sudden I'm like, okay, leukemia, like where are we? Well, you know what I mean? Like, what is that? What does that mean? And so, you know, we had to sit in there and wait for her, her labs to be run. And I just sat and Josh sat in the chair next to us and I sat on the bed with Grace and just held her and tried to, to just wrap my head around, you know, what was happening and how a world could change so quickly. And I remember um, that the social workers came in and they brought in um, a fleece blanket that someone had tied. <laughs> it kind of made me laugh because, like, my whole life I'd gone to, like, little service projects. I mean, I tied <laughs> many of tied blankets have you done for right? a project. <laughs> exactly, right? And, like, you know, it was always kind of like, oh, my gosh, we're tying these blankets again. And so when it came in, I literally, like, just started bawling because that blanket meant so much to me. And I think it's probably the most precious blanket that I <laughs> own still to this day um, because it was, it was there for me when I needed it the most. And just to know that there was someone out there that cared um, like saved me in that moment. So we just rolled up in this fleece blanket that someone who I will never know and never be able to thank gave us. And uh, they brought in some packed lunches that someone had also packed. We just tried to snack and we turned on a show for Grace and just tried to, you know, it's so hard because things take time in the hospital and you want them just to be running like at breakneck speed and you want answers and you want to just yeah. figure it out and fix it and things take time. And that's especially like, in the emergency room. It's like the slowest oh. place ever. <laughs> exactly. You're like, okay, like, just. I know you go to the emergency room a couple times and both times I feel like you're there for so yes. long and yeah. you know, it's been yep. two hours since we've seen anyone. Can somebody come back and tell me what's going <laughs> yeah. on? Yes, exactly. You're like, wave the magic wand and just fix it. So yeah, so that was that was the beginning of it all. I know you had mentioned that it was all leukemia. Can you explain what that is, or is that is that just the full name? Yeah, yeah. So, so Grace was diagnosed with ALL B cell leukemia, which stands for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, that's in her B cells. So you have different kind of cells in your immune response and hers is in her B cells. So it's the most common type of childhood cancer. And so that was actually the first thing that I remember when her blood counts came back, they they brought the whole oncology team down. And I just remember they all walked in and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> who are all of you people? But that was one of the first things they said, you know, is, is if you are going to have cancer, like heaven forbid you have cancer, but if you get cancer, this is the one you want, actually. But they said it's about 90% of, of kids make it through this. But they said it's a long, 
long road, and that's the bad news is you got a long road ahead of you. It's about two and a half years of treatment. So Grace is actually still in active treatment. We're like 18 months into this so far or whatever, and we have another year. So wow. yeah, so it's a long road. And then the time I didn't really care, I was just like, whatever, like, it's just as long as we can fix this, you know, and then, but down the road, it, it turned into be a little more exhausting than I thought. So I've watched a lot of other kids kind of come and go through <laughs> the cancer treatment. And I'm like, how are we still here? But um, Grace was also categorized as high risk. So she is high risk ALL B cell um, for two reasons. One, because of her age, but two, because of high, how high her, her blood counts were. So, so let me give you a little reference. When Grace had that first test done um, while we were at home, her white blood count came back at 50,000. Normal range is 4,500 to 11,000. So, so Grace, that, that very first test was already at 50,000. So we're, you know, five times over normal range. Wow. The next day in the ER, it jumped up to 70,000. Later that week, a couple days later, it peaked at 177,000. Whoa. So we so were... So, like, you guys getting in that timing was really important, right? Because if... Yeah. 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 I mean, how do you... You know, no one knows how much longer we would have had, but it wouldn't have been... It wouldn't have been much longer, and it wouldn't have been pretty. And so the timing and the way that things unfolded was a huge tender mercy and miracle that things unfolded the way that they did because she was beyond like, I mean, some of the highest they've ever seen. So we felt so blessed. So anyway, she was categorized as high risk because of that. And they were also worried about her age. Children who are diagnosed with leukemia that are younger than one year old actually have a lot more, a more serious form of leukemia that they usually have. And since Grace was at 14 months and her counts were so high, they were worried that she had that marker. Um, after a little bit of testing, they realized that she didn't, which was a huge miracle. She was categorized as high risk just because of how high her counts were when she was diagnosed. Like we don't have longer treatment, but her, her chemo has been a little bit more intense than an average person. Yeah, well, that seems like a really long time to have treatment. I mean, not that I'm a cancer expert, but it seems like most people, right. their treatment isn't that long. No, it's, yeah, this is definitely, I mean, you know, unless you have like relapses in a normal case, like this is, it's one of the longest, <laughs> just like straight out of the gate. Like, you know, even if everything goes well, you're, you're with us for like two and a half years. <laughs> so Yeah. Okay, so if you could go back in time and talk to yourself when that first day that you were in the hospital and you had first found out that Grace had leukemia and give yourself advice, what what do you think you'd say? And that's tough. I think one of the first things that I would tell myself is just from a practical standpoint is, you know, be an advocate for your child. Because I, like, really trusted doctors and nurses, and we worked have worked with some of the most amazing doctors and nurses. I have absolutely loved our care teams, but they also are not perfect, 
and sometimes they don't. Only a handful of times, but a couple times things have slipped. And I wasn't sure if I should say something or not say something. I wasn't even sure if I knew what I was talking about. Be an advocate for your child and make sure that you are not just turning over the care to someone else, but make sure that you are engaged in what's going on and making sure that nothing ever falls under the table. But learning to trust myself and my instincts following along was became really important for us. Have you ever read the book, When Breath Becomes Air? Yes. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read it, it, I mean, you have, but if other people <laughs> listening haven't read it, it's really good. But it kind of gives you a little insight into the human error of the medical world. I think people are trying the best they can. Somebody's at the end of like a 12-hour shift that they right. worked, and people are tired, and things happen, right. and there is human error, and no one will advocate for your child as much as you. And of course, they're going to do the best they can, but it's a little different. It's not their child. You know, everyone has different words for it, like a mother's instinct, their intuition, mm-hmm. a spiritual prompting, or, or whatever whatever you may call those. But I feel like mothers really are, fathers too, they are blessed with a gift of insight into what their kids need that other people don't always get to be able to trust that instinct and be able to not doubt yourself even though and and it can be intimidating because you're like these are professionals they do this all the time and I'm new to this but I Mm -hmm. think that that's a that's good advice all right so tell us a little bit about I mean everyone knows about COVID but tell us about how how did COVID impact your experience you were saying that there was only one parent that was allowed to be there at a time and everything because I mean obviously we're not through with COVID but this when this first started this was like in the height of everything (laughs) yeah 2020 was quite the year you know the one thing that was really nice about COVID if I can say that I guess was the fact that because of it we had just spent time with both families. And that was something that I held on to during that that tough time was just like the wonderful time that we had just had with both families was just such a blessing. As we get into it with cancer, it really changed things for us because the you know the hospital had all of these new policies because you know at the beginning especially no one knew, you know, like how things were going to play out and you know, the oncologist didn't know how COVID would affect a child with cancer, you know, so it was like, they were just unknowns and things have, you know, panned out and we have, you know, more answers now, which has helped. But for that first little bit, especially, um, it was, it was tight and it was tough. One of the biggest one was that there was only one parent allowed bedside. So they gave us like two or three days into her diagnosis. Um, So when she was first admitted, we were in, I think it was maybe, oh gosh, I don't remember if it was like a week or 10 days we were in for the first time, but they gave us like two or three days and then they said, okay, you you, you can only have one parent now. Another part of the story, but anyway, she ended up being released from the hospital and within uh, just a couple days we were readmitted to the hospital and she was in there for about another month. Josh and I had to switch down in the lobby, which meant leaving Grace upstairs with the nurse. 
she'd already gone through so much trauma that even just being away from us for just a couple minutes was just very upsetting to her. And so she would just be up there with the nurse just screaming. So Aww. one of us would like run down to that the lobby. Your heart. It was, it, that was horrible. And she's so um, little too. It was just, probably so hard for her to even understand what was going on. Well, she had, she had no idea. Her whole world had overnight, you know, I mean like Josh and I's world had over completely changed, but we understood to some degree what was happening. She had, there was nothing for her to understand. You know, she can't even talk. She's 14 months learning a few words. We can't use words to explain to her what's going on. She has no idea. You know, she had gone from this whole world revolving around her with, you know, two loving parents and doting grandparents and aunts and uncles that just all focused on her and loving her. And then all of a sudden overnight, she's in this new place and pretty much everyone she sees like, hurts her. And she doesn't, Grace changed like overnight. Like she went from being a very confident, trusting individual to a very timid and scared and like traumatized child. And that was very heartbreaking. Before she was diagnosed, Grace was just had this cute little voice. It, whenever like she'd see someone, or even if she just had been there for a while, and she would just always go, "Hi, hi, hi, hi." She just she loved to say hi to everyone, and just like was just like so excited to see everyone. And that disappeared overnight in the hospital. She just oh, shut God. down. It was horrible. So she's you know in this really difficult spot and can't understand and so Josh and I are running down to the lobby and you know a quick kiss and like I wrote down notes down for you in the journal and good luck and you know we switched spots and and we saw each other twice a day for maybe 30 seconds and that was it <laughs> so that was like and probably a- so lonely for you too because you have nurses coming in and out but it's not like you're really having yeah. Conversations about uplifting. <laughs> At one point while we were in there that first month, we ended up <laughs> having seven teams that were rounding on us throughout the day. And so by the time you got done with separate different appointments throughout the day, it was like, <laughs> you know, you felt like you were talking to people all day long, but none of it was just like, hi, how are you? It was utterly exhausting. Everything was so shocking that my body was physically reacting to it as well. So that was very difficult. Cancer, at least leukemia, I, I've, I've heard. And you know, it's it's hard as we're having this conversation. I just want to remind everyone that I, I'm just sharing my experience, you know, and, and I have realized that there are many ways and things that overlap, uh, overlap when you're when you're comparing cancer experiences and you're relating cancer experiences, but there's also so much that's different. And so I'm just sharing my experience, but from what I have heard from other people and from our doctors is that it's very typical for your leukemia kids to pretty much like very heavily isolate that first year of treatment. And so we're, we're layering COVID isolation on top of leukemia isolation. And so we were isolated, like 100% 100% completely. Grace came out of the hospital. We just shut the doors. And, you know, I didn't walk into a grocery store or any type of a store for probably seven to nine months. Like nothing, like absolutely nothing. We did Walmart pickup 
and we would come home and wipe the groceries off. And I mean, that was, that was it. We didn't even see Josh's, you know, we saw Josh's family from 10 feet away. One of the biggest miracles for us actually was um, Josh's parent have a little apartment that they rent out above their second garage. It's tiny, like one bedroom. But the people who had been living in it moved out the week that Grace was diagnosed. His parents like turned a little closet into a, a place that Grace could put a crib. Um, when she was released from the hospital that second time, we moved into this tiny little bedroom. So that was a whole nother thing, um, especially because of COVID and one parent bedside and everything that was going on. Josh uh, had to take the year off of school. Um, his school was so understanding and supportive. And they said, you know what, just, just take the year off. And so Josh took a gap year. Um, and so my dad and some of my siblings flew out to Chicago and they went into our apartment and they packed us all up and they moved all of our stuff to Arizona and we put most of it in storage and we took a few things and we moved into this tiny little apartment and we were completely isolated for nine months other than seeing doctors. It was the hospital and that was it. We saw Josh's family from about 10 feet away and we um, we didn't even go in their house. We just completely isolated. So it was heavy, heavy, heavy isolation. Oh, I'm so I feel like we all have had little glimpses of isolation, but nine months felt like you were going crazy. I guess we kind of have gotten used to it. It, to be honest, the the perspective around it has helped so much because at that point, I didn't even care as long as I had grace. I didn't care. And so yeah. that really has gone. And, and you wanted, you're doing it because you want to protect your child and you don't want her to get sick. So, yeah. So even now, I mean, you know, I, like I said, we're 18 months out and we're still just pretty completely isolated. Every once in a while now I'll put a mask on Grace and take her in very quickly to a store to grab something and run out. But we still don't really see people and, and we definitely are not living a normal life because grace is still on chemo. It's, it's a lighter dose of chemo now. And so she's not as immunocompromised as she was that first year, but she's still very immunocompromised. The second year of treatment, they try to keep them in a range between like 700 and 1500 and anywhere in that range, as long as it's in that range, then they just leave it. But grace with her, her chemo, she tends to fall at the bottom end of that range and so if she gets a cold, a lot of times for the kids, if, the, if it's the first year and they get a cold, it's just like you're pretty, you, I mean, you're admitted. You'd get admitted. The second year, it's like you get admitted if it falls to a certain point. And Grace always tends to be at the bottom end of that range. And so we always get admitted. <laughs> and so um, she gets a cold and it means that we automatically are like we're admitted for probably like a week. <laughs> and I just now with that we have a second child and we don't have any family out here and Josh is in medical school again. I just can't do that. And so we we literally just stay home. So because even a, even a cold's too much for her right now. Man, I'm sure that's hard. So how did Grace handle the chemotherapy not really knowing what was going on and to explain that to her? I mean, we didn't, we, we couldn't, you know, I mean, she didn't understand words, you know, she was still just 
hi, bye, and I love you. She just trusted us, you know, which was amazing. You know, to me, I just remember thinking, like, this is, this is amazing because, like, she's lost trust in so many other people around her, but she never lost trust in Josh and I. And that was amazing to me because at that point, you know, the, the vast majority of her day was uncomfortable or, you know, painful. And yet she still forgave Josh and I for seemingly like inflicting this pain on her, even though she couldn't understand it. And that was just amazing to me. So she started chemo just a couple days after we were admitted you know, within that first week or so, her, her eating just really petered out. You know, she had just, I mean, she's 14 months, so she just was starting to kind of learn to eat and, you know, more foods and bigger quantities and stuff. And we had to put a, a feeding tube in. And so for the next 15 months, we had a feeding tube. It runs down through her nose, down her, you know, her esophagus into her tummy, and then hooked up to a, a feeding pump outside. And so that was hard. That was really hard for me to accept that she wasn't going to be eating. But once I was able to accept that, it actually was a huge relief and burden off my shoulders because that was just one less thing I didn't have to worry about. And I just became so grateful for that feeding pump that I just knew that she's getting what she needs and I don't need to worry about it. I'm not fighting her to, to eat food or anything yeah. because of her chemo was so high. She wasn't tolerating it. And so her pump ran like 22 hours a day or something like that. And so, and she couldn't carry it around. So it was us like following her around with this feeding <laughs> pole all the time. So we like affectionately nicknamed the feeding pole Wally and Wally became the fourth member of our family and went everywhere we did. And we just loved him. And we actually just sent him back in like two months ago. And I was actually kind of sad about it. So <laughs> he's, he's officially gone, but he became a, a huge part of our um, family. But uh, putting that NG tube in, it had to be replaced about every month unless it you know, got clogged or something like that. It was very, a very traumatic thing for her. So that was really hard, but we became very, very grateful for that feeding tube. We also, within like a week or two of, you know, her starting her chemo, her hair started to come out. And, um, you know, it's so interesting is you're diagnosed with chemo and you think like, oh, the diagnosis will be like the big morning point. And it is, you know, and that really hits home, but you kind of like just have moments all throughout this that kind of hits you on new levels in new phases of mourning. And her losing your hair was, was another one for me. It, it comes out faster than I expected it to, and it came out in big clumps. And so Grace would not be separated from me. She slept next to me for months, months and months. And so we'd wake up in the morning and there would just be just chunks of her hair on the pillow and that was hard and so you know it's it's everywhere it's it's all over the place and it's in your mouth and you know you just you're like it's just horrible so you know we saved some of it she was a cute little bald person <laughs> yeah. um and uh anyway so that was our hair experience you know and to be honest so I was so grateful that she was the age that she was at because even though it was so hard for her, because she was so young, she literally could not understand anything. 
in some ways I was so grateful because she never once cared that she was bald. You know, I, for older kids that becomes a hard thing, but Grace, she's never cared. You know, she's yeah. like, I look, I look good. You know, <laughs> like what is, what's hair? I don't know. Who cares? You probably cared about it more than she did. Oh, completely. She didn't know she was sick. Like she wasn't worried about being sick or dying or, you know, any of that. And so in some ways that actually was a huge comfort to me because I was like, she's not worried about it, you know? So, okay. It really wasn't until the last couple months that Josh and I have looked back at pictures of Grace and we're like, honey, did you see these pictures? She looks awful. Like she looks, she looks so sick. Like she looks like a cancer kid. We had no idea until the last couple months as we have looked back on photos, how sick Grace looked. To us, she was just Grace. We never saw her the way other people did. And I think that's probably common. But, like, we just saw her as our daughter, and we just loved her, and she was so beautiful. And it really wasn't until the last, like, couple months that we've looked back and we're like, she looked horrible. That was just so profoundly shocking to me to realize that what I was seeing during that time is not what other people were seeing. And I just saw this beautiful girl, and I just loved her so much, and I never saw how sick and awful she looked. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, kind of your perspective. And I feel like when you love somebody so unconditionally, like you don't pinpoint the negative parts. You're just there for them, right? Right. That first eight to nine months is the first, is the heaviest chunk of chemo. And they do it in cycles. So each cycle is different, like types of chemo. And so her reactions were different. So like every two months we were going through like a new phase. And so we kind of had to readjust like every two months. But it was around the clock care. And so her medicine went through her Wally tube, which was really nice because we didn't have to force it down her mouth. So that was really, really nice. They put a port in uh, like just right on their chest. And so Grace went in to have this port put in and they put it, they put it in on the right-hand side. And for some reason they couldn't get it to stop bleeding. And so they had to pull it out and close her up quick and get the bleeding stopped. And then they, so they got on the left-hand side and it worked. Um, so she had the port, which was really nice. So they didn't always have to have an IV in her or whatever. And so she still has that port. Um, she'll have it for probably another year until we actually finish with everything. So now we just go in once a month, but back then we were going in once a week. Her medicine went through her Wally tube. My husband, Josh, uh, was so helpful. He just took over all of the medicines. Every night he'd take about an hour and he would get out all the medications and all of her anti-nausea and everything. And he would just wash out all of the syringes and then fill everything up for the next day that we would need. And it was there's, we have a picture of it on our Instagram account, but it's literally like, you know, you get a dinner size plate and it was completely full of medications and flushes for, you know, after each medication has to be flushed and different things. But she had like four different nausea medications that she was getting four doses of each one, you know, so that's, you know, four, four, and then the flushes. So, you know, there's 20 right there. And then she was sometimes getting chemo and pain meds and antidiarrheal and stomach acid medications. And so, I mean, it was just like nonstop medications, whether we were in the hospital or at home. So it was like a full-time job in addition to you know, normal care of a child. 
Yeah. We talk about that he took a year off of school, but it sounds like he just got his oncology rotation, right? <laughs> Honestly, that's what I like. I was like, you can just skip that one. Like, just yeah. You're done. So, yeah, so it was different, you know, in, in different rotations, she she handled um, differently. I, they were they were hard for, for different reasons. Some of them were hard because she was super, super nauseous. Some of the other cycles were very hard because there's a couple rotations where they put their cycles, they put them on steroids, and these steroids make them extremely upset and agitated. And so one of those cycles Grace was on last Christmas. Last Christmas was actually a very difficult time for us. Steroids were causing her to not even sleep. And so she was sleeping about four hours a day. Oh and the other, the other 20 hours a day, she was literally like morning to night and then into the night and throughout the night, just bloody murder screaming, like just scream, 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 scream. And I just have this very vivid image in my mind of like looking over in our tiny apartment and we had this Christmas tree and Grace is standing in front of the Christmas tree, just screaming at it just screaming at it and these steroids just made her like so mad which is not grace like grace is just I'm the so kindest sad. sweetest happiest child and for like a couple weeks she just screamed and that was very difficult that was one of my lowest lows just because I was not only not sleeping and so frazzled but just to see her so upset you know was just yeah and then we ended up getting admitted you know, right after that again. And so we didn't end up spending Christmas in there, but we, we cut it kind of close. Was that discouraging when you would go home and then get readmitted? Was that hard to go back and forth? At first it wasn't because I was just so like, whatever we need to do, you know, like, but then as we kind of, you know, we got into it more and I got more worn out. It did. It, It became just, just every time was just kind of like another blow, you know, like even though it was like, okay, she'll probably be fine and she'll be home soon. I just knew how hard it was on her to just be like shut up in a room. You know, we couldn't, the hospital, pretty much everything at the hospital shut down. So there were no, like you couldn't go out in the hall and visit with other patients. You couldn't go down to the playroom. They didn't have animals coming in. There was none of that. And so it was just you in your room just sitting there. You know, so those are long, very lonely, discouraging days. I felt a lot of darkness and chaos and fear inside of me. I just learned throughout this whole experience, and it wasn't something new, but it was something that I learned on a new level, that it's not the absence of trials in our life that's proof that that God is there, but it's rather like the tender mercies that we see along the way that are evidence that he is present. And that's what I can just testify of, is that we saw so many little tender mercies along the way, and that was what I held on to, and that's how I knew that he was there. Because inside, to be honest, I mostly just felt fear and darkness, and yet I could see surrounding me these little tender mercies, and that kept me going until I could find and let that peace actually into my heart and the light back into my heart. And so just holding on to those those tender mercies and realizing that just because we were, I was going through this really big challenge, it didn't mean that God wasn't there, but 
the tender mercies we did see were evidence that he was there. I love that. A lot of times as a child, you think, please take this away from me. Fix the problem. Help our baby to not have cancer. Just mm-hmm. take the cancer away. But mm-hmm. that it, that God works differently than that. That he blesses with you with all these people to love you and sustain you. But it's that experience is what you needed to be who you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say one of the things that was so beautiful about this hospital is that on, we we had rooms on every side of the hospital. So we really did a 360 panoramic view. But one of the sides of the hospital I loved because it looked down over a fire station. And on the roof of this fire station some years ago, they put up in in big, bright neon letters, this big sign that says hope. And during the day, it's, it's white. And then at nighttime, they, they light it up and it changes colors. And it just, I loved that because I just would, wherever I needed a reminder, I would just look out the window and I would look down at that word, just hope. And I, I would just would try to hold on for one more day. And I just was so grateful that that was there. That's really sweet. So tell us a little bit about what people can do to help. I know you had mentioned on one of your posts about people donating blood. Also, can you just share a little bit about like what people did to help you and what advice you have for people how to help when they don't really know what to do? Yeah. I'd never really thought much, to be honest, about donating blood. And uh, I'd never donated blood up until that point. And so when Grace started getting those blood transfusions, I mean, she needed them several times. Um, And sometimes it was just platelets. But, um, you know, there's, (laughs) at least since she's been diagnosed, there's pretty much always been a blood shortage. And especially now, I know there there really are a lot of blood shortages. Um, But to have that blood there in those platelets when we needed them, you know, a lot of times we'd have to just sit and wait. Like if, if we weren't admitted and we were just in for the day or whatever, we'd have to sit and wait for quite a while for the, the blood to, they'd have to go out and get more, like send to a blood bank or whatever and come back with it. And, but I was just so grateful, you know, someone that I will never know I will, who it was took the time to go in and make this sacrifice. And it literally has saved my daughter. I just feel like angels who walk into those blood banks and take the time to donate blood and it truly saves lives. So I'm so grateful. And so in fact, my mother-in-law, she hosted, I guess, two different blood drives while we were down there and she's going to continue to do so. But I was overwhelmed at all of the people who showed up to support our family and to donate blood. And that meant so much to me. And there's a lot of other people who went and donated blood in general and every single time it just meant so much to me and in fact (laughs) cute story my brother-in-law his grandpa went and his grandpa's like I think 98 years old and he went and donated blood at a blood drive for grace and he was like sick for like four days afterwards It it just took it out of him but I was like I have just love him I just feel so grateful that he would do that for someone he will never know so just wonderful people when people go through things like this you want to help but sometimes you don't know how to help and what's your advice on 
what things were helpful, what, what did you appreciate? I feel like I was right there too, because I'd never had someone who had cancer. I didn't know what to do. So really, honestly, just do something, just do anything. And don't worry about too much about what it is. Josh's aunt sent us some like crumble cookies, I think when we were in the hospital at one point and she just wrote this note and she said, I don't know what you need. And I know that it's not cookies. I just want you to know that we love you and that we're here for you. And honestly, that just meant so much to me. She was right. It wasn't the cookies, but it was the love that I needed, you know, and that was just so touching to me. You know, it was, it was the love behind it that carried me through. And honestly, that's what carried me through, through the whole thing. Um, my birthday was a week after Grace was diagnosed and I did not want to celebrate <laughs> like at all. <laughs> People just showed up and they didn't expect me to celebrate, but they just showed up to show love. And that is what I needed. Honestly, it probably was the best birthday that I'm ever going to have in my life as horrible as it was (laughs) because so many people just like showed up and reached out and showed love. And whoever kind of reached out to my mom, she just said, would you write her a letter? Just write her a letter. And so people did. And I collected all of them and I, I put them in a big binder and I have a huge binder now of these letters from like some of our, someone from people we went to high school with that like I haven't even talked to since then. Um, and just like different messages from people. And to be honest, Liz, like I didn't actually even read them for like four months. Like I just couldn't <laughs> emotionally. It was too much for me. I just, yeah. I couldn't go there, but I knew that they were there and I would open the binder and I would just thumb through the pages and look at the names. And that saved me. That was what I needed is just to know that people were there and they loved me and that they cared. And eventually I went through and and read them and I will have those notes and those letters the rest of my life. That was so important for me. If you want to do something concrete, people always go for gas cards because you do a lot of driving (laughs) to the hospital, grocery cards, you know, toys. Some people did Uber Eats. All of that was, was very, very helpful. You know, just money is very helpful. If you don't have that stuff, then do what you, what you can do. We had the young women showed up and heart attacked our house. And that meant so much to me. I bawled when I came home and there were these hearts all over our house. We had another neighbor that lent us their bunny. (laughs) We brought the bunny in the backyard and we played with it forever. And it was so fun. And Grace loved this bunny. We had a brother-in-law's niece who made us all like gray strong t-shirts. And that meant so much to me. We had an aunt that made us Play-Doh one time and brought it over when Grace was in the hospital. Someone made me a cross stitch of these little zoo animals. It was so cute that we hung in Grace's room. You know, there were meals that were dropped off. Josh's uncle one time um, was a doctor at the hospital. He came and sat with Grace for an hour. So Josh and I could just have an hour together on our anniversary um, when she was admitted. Um, you know, it offering. I also saw somebody wrote a song. Was that your brother? My sister-in-law, my sister-in-law. Yes. She's so talented. So she would just write the cutest little songs for Grace. And oh my gosh, I can't go there. Those make me cry every time. Yeah, I, I looked that up and I was like, okay, this is going to be good for me. Yeah, no, it, those are, they're tear jerkers. So yes. just be, be aware. You know, honestly, this would like, if you know them well enough, but like offering to do their laundry, chemo and throw up 
there is a lot of laundry going on, you know? So if it's something like that, or someone did the 12 days of Christmas for us, or go to a blood drive, someone did a music kit and they sent us like different instruments. And then like they recorded some songs that Grace could like follow along to and use these instruments. It was so cute. People are so generous and creative. So generous, Liz. So generous. We had family members that would come outside the hospital and they would just stand down there and we would come up to the window and they would just stand there and wave. Or like they'd do chalk drawings on the cement or whatever that we could look at. And just having someone there because we couldn't see like people normally, we didn't have visitors, that meant so much to me, just having someone there to wave at and smile at and see. I just loved that. You know, and that's what I realized, like it doesn't really matter what it is, just show up just show up and let them know that you love them. And, you know, honestly, Liz, like I said this at the beginning, but I, I really truly like my whole life just saw myself and still do see myself as a very inconsequential person. I really was um, like blown away by the people that showed up, like people that, you know, I literally haven't talked to since high school that messaged me and were like, I just want you to know that I'm thinking of you and that I care and I'm so sorry. And how do you even know? Do you remember who I am? What? I was shocked at how many people just showed up to show love and the people that remembered me. And I just realized to like my core, no one is inconsequential. No one is. And people know. And it doesn't even matter if you're like, that person's not even going to know who I am. It doesn't matter. Show up and show them that you love them. And they are not going to, they are just going to embrace you and love you and be so grateful. And they remember who you are. That's awesome. Two things that you might just want to be sensitive to if you are trying to reach out to someone who's been diagnosed. Number one was that it wasn't very helpful to me to necessarily like be put in touch with other parents who were going through the same thing. And that's different for every person. It was helpful for me though when I was ready for that to know, you know, okay, I remember this person said they knew someone, but it took me a long time till I was ready to get to that point. And I know that that's how it is for a lot of parents is that oftentimes, you know, you're barely handling your own story. You're not usually ready to take on someone else's story. So if you know someone and you want to connect them, go ahead and put it out there, but just leave it out there. And when they're ready, they'll, they'll come back. That's usually... I don't, it's, you know, you're dealing with your own story right off the bat. So yeah, you have a lot of heaviness. You don't need to add other. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, how would you say that this experience has changed you? How do you sum that up? You know, (laughs) I remember at one time I was in college, I went on this bike ride with some friends and it ended up being a lot more than I could handle. (laughs) So I was at the back of the line as we're going up these like big hills And I think it was like 28 miles and I was not ready for that. So I was at the back of the line the entire time. And this person that I didn't even know who totally could have been at the very front of the line, like dropped back and rode next to me the entire time. They didn't say anything. They didn't make me feel stupid. They just dropped back and they just rode with me. And I would just say, go to the back of the line. Make sure you always know who's in the back of the line and where they're at. You know, we're all at the back of the line at some point in our lives. You know, we're all the weakest link at some point in our lives. 
And so find those that are at the back of the line for whatever reason and do whatever you can to make them comfortable, um, even if it's a little bit self-sacrificing. I think that has just changed me. I just feel like I am much more aware and looking for whoever may be at the back of the line on that day. That's really beautiful. Well, I have one last question for you, and that's if you could go back in time to any stage of life and give yourself advice, where would you go and what would you say? Honestly, I'd probably just echo what I said about being inconsequential. I would go back and I would tell myself when I was in junior high and high school and start there so that I had the rest of my life to, <laughs> to remember that, that no one is inconsequential. You are never too inconsequential to show up and show someone else that you love them. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This has been so uplifting to hear your story and to hear what you've been through and the way people were able to help you and what you've learned from this experience. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast episode. I appreciate your support. I thought we would end this episode by listening to a little of the song that Emily was talking about that her family wrote for Grace. Hi, Grace. We wrote you a song. It's called I Am Here. Smile.